Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. And we are starting with Surah 105, and then we're seeing where it goes from there. Okay, the floor is yours. Okay, so um, what I got from Surah 105, well, we know that it's connected to 106. 106 is sort of like an offshoot specifically talking about the Quraysh um, and their role in this narration and like how they should be grateful, but we'd already discussed that. And so with Surah 105, I was a little bit confused. I still am a little confused in the narration, but um, I'll go with what I have or what I understood so far. And then I guess you can just fill in the gaps of whatever I'm missing. Um, but yeah. So Surah 105 is the story of the people of the elephant. And it's about a battle that sort of took place. But before that, it talks about how we were led to that battle. And so there was a king, the king of Himyar. If I'm saying something wrong, please correct me. Uh, Himyar, but, um, but yeah. Himyar? Yeah. Okay. They're all, they're all um, dead, so I don't think they care as much. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah. He was a polytheist and he'd ordered the killing of the people of the ditch. And I'm not sure who, like what that is, but there was one survivor that was a Christian. So I'm assuming all the people of the ditch were Christian. And um, this one survivor fled to Caesar for refuge because they were like the Christian entity that was in power, I suppose. And so Caesar sent him to Ethiopia and the Ethiopian emperor sort of like heard his plea and he agreed to help him. And so he sent two of his governors with this man to Yemen with an army. Um, I'm not sure why Yemen, but he, they were sent to Yemen with an army. Um, and so the army was searching for the king that had just sort of committed the genocide against the people of the dish, but this king had already been dead. Um, however, eventually there was like conflict from this search in Yemen with these two governors and those two armies because both of them wanted to be in power and so that they had resolved to set the issue correct of who would rule Yemen through a duel. Um, and so the two governors from Ethiopia fought each other to determine who would control this foreign land that they sort of invaded, I guess. Um, and so I'm not mentioning any of their names just because I didn't think that it was that important. Anyways, the survivor of the duel um, was trying to, I suppose, consolidate control of Yemen. And he incurred the wrath of the king of the Yemen, the Yemeni people. And um, so because of that, he sought to please him and send gifts. And this worked to appease the king of Yemen and sort of satiate his anger. Um, and because of that, because they sort of reached this diplomatic solution, I guess the king of Ethiopia was pleased now uh, because the Ethiopian governor, well, I guess is acting in his name. Anyways, the king of Ethiopia built a church for this governor like in, in his honor and his tribute. And uh, um, yeah, and so this general from Yemen tried to force the Arab people to make a pilgrimage to this church that was built in his honor. And the Arabs didn't like that because, I mean, I guess who would? <laughs> and so because they rejected and because they were trying to be forced to go regardless of their not wanting to go, the Quraysh people were upset because, you know, they were sort of being um, put in a position in which they were harassed by this guy in power. And um, 
because the Quraysh people were upset, I think one of them or two kids almost, like adolescents, I guess, peed on the church that was built in the governor's name. And of course, the governor was very upset because that's his church and someone peed on it. And so he sought to march on the Kaaba and um, he took his army with him because he wanted to destroy the Kaaba. Um, however, while he developed this, um, this zest to go and destroy things, the church was burned down by Horatio youth, which made him even more determined to go and wreak havoc. And so he started his march, like his military campaign to go and burn down the Kaaba and um, a Yemeni noble tried to stop him and tried to defend the Kaaba, but the general won and the noble was captured. And then there were more tribes along the way that tried to stop his campaign, but none of them worked. Um, and that's where my understanding of it stops because I think the Quraysh come in and there's like a divine, um, well, they obviously have like a divine backing to them because they're trying to burn down the Kaaba. But um, there was this guy that got involved that was like a specific entity that was standing against the general. And yeah, that's where I get lost. Okay, very good. So first, let's just get a sense of, of geography. Um, if you, I don't know if you, are you on an iPad or a computer, like a tablet or a computer? Or? I can look it up. I'm doing split screen right now. Oh, amazing technology. Okay, so mm -hmm. look at a map, like Google Maps. Okay. And, and go all the way to, and look at Saudi Arabia. All right, let me get there. And we are there. Okay. And so the bottom left corner is Yemen. Yes. And then if you zoom in, look at how close Yemen is to Africa. Yeah. And then how close it is to Ethiopia. The country of Ethiopia is a little bit behind, but all of that would have been Ethiopia historically. Right. So, so there just to get a sense of how, how close all of these, these regions are in terms of things that are happening in Yemen, things that are happening in Ethiopia. And so in terms of, of Yemen, uh, oh, here's another side point. You know how like uh, we identify direction by north, south, east, and west. Mm -hmm. um, I'll tell you two cool pieces of trivia. In uh, Europe and other places, they used to identify direction by color. And okay. so north was black, south was red, west mm. was white. And then if you look at a map of the world, you have the Black Sea, you know, uh, right by Eastern Europe, right above Turkey. Yeah. And then if you go south, straight south, you have the Red Sea. Oh. And then the Mediterranean Sea is also sometimes called the White Sea. Good. Huh. Isn't that cool? Yeah. yeah. Now, what else is interesting is that uh, for the Arabs, uh, imagine you're facing east and they would uh, identify north as Shimal, okay. which is your left hand. Yeah. So if you're facing east, your left hand is, is facing north and your right hand is Yamin. So that's south, which sounds like what country? Yemen. Yes. <laughs> is that cool? Yeah. 
Okay. So anyways, those are just some trivia points. But having said that, so what's taking place in, in what is modern-day Yemen, that, that southern coast, is you have the Himyarite kingdom, which spreads a little bit into Ethiopia, and sometimes the Ethiopian monarchy spreads a little bit into Yemen. And mm-hmm. and it's an, in the nature of kingdoms that, you know, there's people that are over always overthrowing. Sometimes it's two brothers that are fighting for control. Um and in the history of the Himyarid kingdom was what was often taking place is that you'd have a general who would then take control. And literally the, the religion of the people would change. Sometimes they were Jewish, sometimes they're idol worshipers, sometimes they're Christians. And so at our part of the story, uh, uh, it's a Christian who's taking over. His name okay. is Abraha. And, and so yes, this church is, is built, super elaborate church. And part of the intention is to take away the business that Mecca has. So, so what's the story of Mecca that you know we we believe was originally built by Adam alayhi salam, and then it's washed away in the flood of Noah, and then it's rebuilt by Ibrahim, peace be upon him, in son Ismail. And over the centuries, it's revered as a place of worship. And thus, people stop there, and it becomes a center of trade. Mm-hmm. Because because people are stopping there for worship, they're traveling to go there, and so then people are also stopping there for for trade. And so the Quraysh—that's how they get their dominance, the, okay. the tribe of of Mecca, because they're they're uh, uh, taking care of the Kaaba. And about nine generations before the Prophet, peace be upon him, you don't need to remember the number, but about three hundred years before the Prophet, peace be upon him. One of the leaders of Mecca, he's traveling up north and he sees people that are that are praying to statues and he asks them, okay, what are these statues for? And he's told, okay, they help us get closer to God. And he thought this is a good idea. And so he asked them for a statue and they gave him a statue of Hubal. And, and he takes us back to, to Mecca and he announces everyone, this is now the God of, of Mecca. Meaning we are going to worship this as a way to get to Allah. Okay. And, and then over the, the centuries, the next few centuries, people started expanding on idol worship to the point that they would have a hierarchy where you have Allah and then Allah would have daughters. People would have the own, their own idol representing their tribe the way in modern times we have like a, a flag. Uh, every country seems to have a bird. Every state has a bird, you know, and so forth and so on. And so those, these totems. And, and so everybody would have their own idol. And then they'd have a further hierarchy of idols where they'd worship idols for particular purposes, for wealth and all that stuff. And so, so the Quraysh is profiting off this saying, keep your idols in the Kaaba. And, you know, they're collecting a fee. And so, so they're getting spiritual dominance. People are just respecting them because of the caretakers of this house of worship. And they're also cashing in. And this uh, this is uh, this is sort of helped give them power all across Arabia. Right. So down south, uh, they wanted to turn Yemen into a center of trade because if you think Africa is right there, and it's not that far to travel over to India. Right. Know, looking at the map, because even today, like uh, I forgot, are you guys Hyderabadi? No, you're not, right? Yeah. Yeah, you are. Okay, so. There's a lot of Hyderabadis that ethnically are Yemeni. Yeah. And this just relates to the trade routes. And so, so they're trying to shift uh, the trade center away from Mecca down to Yemen. 
starting with a house of worship, hoping to expand it from there. And then some people from the Quraysh, they come and they defile the, the church. And this so the church goes, was in Yemen, not in Ethiopia. Uh, correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, I mean, the some of it, if not all of it, was perhaps paid for by the king of Ethiopia. Uh, right. But uh, physically, it's in Yemen. Okay. And so, so this person, Abraha, is so upset that they defiled the church. I mean, like you said, they probably urinated or defecated or something in the church. That, I mean, which is just about the worst thing you can do in a house of worship. I mean, right. That's the worst thing you can do in anybody's house anyway. But um, uh, so he decides he's going to go in vengeance. He's going to go destroy the Kaaba. And, and his army includes this elephant. And so first, as he's heading up there, you know, he goes to nearby towns like Taif, which back then was our equivalent of five or 10 miles away, but a long journey, you know, on walk or on foot or on camel. Mm -hmm. And he'd get this, he'd try to get the support of those people. And eventually he goes um, to attack Mecca directly with his forces. The people of Mecca, they know he's coming. Well, I should also mention before he's, he heads out, he announces he's going to come and do this. And so the leader of Mecca is the grandfather of the prophet, peace be upon him, Abdul Muttalib. And he goes down <clears throat> to Yemen to visit Abraha. And Abraha is really impressed because he's heard all these great things about Abdul Muttalib. And he thought Abdul Muttalib was coming to negotiate peace, you know, or maybe even surrender or something. And no, he says, all right, you stole a hundred of my camels. I want my camels back. And Abraha thought this is ridiculous. I'm coming to destroy your town. All you care about are camels. And he says, okay, Allah is going to take care of the Kaaba. That's not my responsibility. I want my camels. And that's just one side point. Before Abraha actually heads out to destroy uh, Mecca, he arrives at Mecca, the people of Mecca, because they don't want to be destroyed by the army. They actually leave town. Okay. Wait, quick question, though. So this was before the time of Muhammad Islam. This was with his So this is all taking place the year he's born. Okay. Yeah. So then this is before Islam is like a religion. So so Ibrahim alayhi salam is the one who brought Islam to, to Mecca. Right. But that's before anybody lived there. And it was a place of, of, of Islam or whatever it would have been called in their language and then into, into, into Arabic. But then the whole region becomes the land of, of idol worship. Okay. And so, and so then when the Prophet starts preaching, yes. So then when the, the prophet's grandfather was saying that Allah will take care of the Kaaba, was he referring to like the multiple gods that were in the Kaaba or so, like the unified so, entity as we know it? So they did believe in Allah as a supreme being. Okay. And uh, a proof of that is what's the father of, of the prophet's, what's the prophet's father's name? Abdullah. And, and Abdullah is a servant of Allah. That's what it means literally. But so they okay. believed in Allah as a supreme being. And then Allah also has these daughters beneath him. And then there's all these other gods, the gods of the tribes and everything else. Right. Okay. And so remember, like, why did they insert, uh, introduce idol worship? It's like the original theory was that this will help us get closer to God. Right. By worshiping. Okay. So they still believe in Allah as a supreme being, but they disregarded him as distant. They didn't okay. pay much attention. And, and so, yeah. So there was still somewhat of a belief of, of Allah, like that example. Good question. And so... So Abraha arrives with his forces at the Kaaba, ready to destroy it. And this elephant stops moving mm -hmm. and refuses to budge. 
And then as the story goes, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to like poke at the elephant to make it move forward. And then from the other side behind the hills, this huge swarm of birds comes, you know, just like in Lord of the Rings, this huge swarm of birds comes and just starts pelting, you know, all these, these fighters and the elephants and everything with what could be with stones, could be with, with something in their feces or something, but they're just, they're just totally pelting them with such force that the birds will destroy this whole this whole army. Like uh, the way they're described, it's like it's like chewed up corn or something. Uh, okay. That's what's left, and so that's what the sura is about. So you know, have you not seen how your Lord dealt with the people of the elephant? Didn't he turn their plan into nothing, and he sent flying birds upon them in swarms, throwing upon them? You know, some people translate it as like little stones or clay or something. And then he turned them into like what literally looks like eaten, you know, corn or, or corn husk or something. Like mush. Yeah, literally like mush. And so, so then uh, what happens after that? A number of things. The, the esteem that the Quraysh holds is now even higher because it's like God is on their side. Yeah. But little do they know that also in the same year, the prophet is born. Okay. And so what's going to happen uh, as the prophet starts preaching, you know, we always teach that the Quraysh is opposing him and such, but think of the psychology that the Quraysh have, that, you know, we are like the greatest of the people and God is on our side. And the long, here comes the prophet who's one of them, who's telling them, okay, your religion is bogus. So don't take these claims, you know, don't hold these claims too high that you think God is on your side and such. And so... So that's, you know, it's also sort of like a foreshadowing of what's going to be coming in, in about 40 years when the prophet starts preaching. Okay. So that's, that's interesting because there's so much like anthropological and historical. Yeah. Really that yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, thank you for the clarification. Sure. Cool. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, so then how should we take the story? I mean, we take it as a literal event. Sometimes mm -hmm. the, the details might vary. You know, like I said, we don't know like what these birds were dropping on them and such. Uh, it's commonly understood that if there's one elephant, who knows there might've been multiple elephants, those details become less important. The idea being that at times, Allah does intervene. Mm -hmm. you know, that most of human experience is almost like cause and effect, yeah. right? But there are times where Allah does intervene, and thus there's a strong purpose for making du'a to Allah. Because basically, when you're when you're making when you're making du'a to Allah, it's sort of like you're saying that okay, life is designed to go this way, but I need it to shift directions. Okay. And so, so this is also an encouragement to make du'a. Couldn't you argue though that, well, I don't know. But it was sort of like um, the prophet's grandfather dismissed the army saying, God will take care of that. Uh, but I don't think that there was mention of him praying to uh -huh. Allah that he takes care of it. And so to me, it's almost reminiscent of like, I don't know if you've ever encountered this person where it's like, oh, um, I don't have to study for this test. God will take care of that. Like whatever is supposed to happen yeah. will happen. Yeah, so so a couple aspects there. There, they understood that it, that it, uh, the Kaaba was the property of God, so mm -hmm. it's up to God to protect it, right? So 
technically they didn't really have to make dua for Allah to protect the Kaaba. That's that's his responsibility. If he wants to protect it, he can. It's kind of like saying, do we actually need to protect Islam? No, that's up to Allah to protect Islam. Although we need to protect our own faith and we need to do, because Allah isn't promising to protect that. And, and we need to work to protect the faith of other people. Right. So that's one point. The other point is about the people who are just like, well, if it's meant to be, it, it will be, then why do anything in life? You know, okay. yeah, well, if I'm meant to go to heaven, I will. No, you, if you take that approach, you're probably going to go to hell. <laughs> right. No, that's, yeah. I like the surah because I feel like there's so much um, that can be derived from it. Like other surahs, it is sort of more of just a conversation, I suppose, between okay. the reader and God. But this one, I feel like there's a lot more detail that could be um, that could be used as like a learning mechanism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, all the surahs have have you know multiple levels and stuff, and yeah, we're we're touching upon whatever seems appropriate. So yeah, and so through all these studies, you'll probably find that you like this surah especially versus that surah and such. We respect them all, but there might be some surahs that speak to you more. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, and also just a side point, that story of the people in the ditch, that's discussed in more detail in Surah 85, Surah Al-Buruj. That's okay. a whole story of its own. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And then let's see what time is it. Uh, we have a little bit of time. Do you want to talk about some takeaway points from yeah. the, the, the previous surahs we've explored? Yes. Um, so I sort of just summarized all the take the major themes, I suppose, because those would be the takeaways. But of course... Um, the most reoccurring one is that God is all-powerful and that was to be expected because that's just there from the outset, like from the very first surah and um, whatnot. Like you always take God's name before you start reciting the Quran. But I think that there's more offshoots that sort of stem from this idea that God is all-powerful. And one of those is God is all-knowing. And um, with this all-knowing thing, that does contribute to God's power, but I think that the more important thing to pay attention to with the all-knowing is God is aware of how you're acting, not just in his name, or like perhaps you're saying you're acting in this name, but you're not like revisiting this idea of performative faith. And then also what we were saying about um, taking care of those that are less privileged in society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is yet another really big one because God is all knowing. So God is aware of your struggles, but also of how you compose yourself in society and the manner in which you're ascribing to what God wants you to, not just private, like publicly, but privately too, and um, whatnot. And um, I think what stems even more from God is all knowing is that God wants to help you. Like, I don't, I think that it's really easy to sort of um see challenges that come at you as sort of like god is sending this to test me and that that there may be some truth to that but i feel like if you can also look at them as god despite sending this challenge wants to help me overcome this challenge and um that's there in a bunch of different surahs with the most notable ones being um the surahs of refuge in which the prophet was undergoing adversity like with the spells and of course um, God helped him. And there's just other narrative surahs too, in which people were speaking ill of the prophet and um, of other people and like the less fortunate weren't being helped. And God is there to protect all the people that are sort of victims, I guess. Um, and then even more from the narrative elements, you sort of see more real life application of God's power, because I think it's really easy to sort of just view God as this abstract entity um, that's not really um involved or that's not really 
present in what happens day to day. And so there are a few surahs that we've done that have been more narrative, like the ones with um, Abu Lahab. And there was one more recently in which there was this guy saying that because the prophet doesn't have sons, his um, he won't be remembered. Um, and so I feel like these narrative surahs in which God is directly addressing opponents of the prophet or directly intervening in battle and things like that sort of just go to um, reinforce the idea that God is not this abstract entity, that he, should he want to, will get involved, and um, you just need to be more conscious of that. Um, and then another thing that I thought was a reoccurring theme is the promise of afterlife. So you, you have all these different things about struggle, and you have all these different things about trying to be a good person, and you're not just being a good person because you've been asked to be a good person, you are getting something in return for being a good person, for being a good Muslim. And that is this promise of afterlife. And um, there's also, of course, the message that it's really easy to ignore the promise of afterlife for the convenience of your present life, um, to become wealthy here, to become successful here. You might have to disregard, well, in a lot of ways, like especially in like a capitalist economy, I guess you do have to disregard the tenets of Islam. <laughs> I know that's debatable, um, but um, it sort of just reiterates that while you may be having an easy time in this life, you should constantly be working to ensure that the same is um, available to you in the afterlife. And um, to do that, there's all these beautiful descriptions of Islam that are, or of heaven that are presented to you, and of course of Islam too. And um, all these different promises that are made to Muslims as to what they will receive one day, reach the afterlife. And so, yeah, I thought that those were the biggest themes. Okay, okay, those are all really, really good. And so what you should do then is try to ongoing keep those internalized. Okay. In terms of, of your own personal life, spirituality and growth and such. Okay, good. Uh, let's stop right here, and then uh, next time, inshallah, we'll get into Surahs 104 and 103 and all that, inshallah. Okay, sounds good. Cool. Sure. Very good. Any last questions about any of this? Um, none that I could think of. Okay. All right, so then we'll stop. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa tibu ilaik. All right, nice work, and then we'll reconvene next week, inshallah. Okay. Inshallah. Allah this. Bye.